The International Association for Near-Death Studies presents NDE Radio, a weekly exploration of near-death experiences and similar encounters with the other side. Now, here's your host, Lee Whitting. Welcome to NDE Radio, brought to you by IANS, the International Association for Near-Death Studies. I'm your host, Lee Whitting. In February of 2008, our guest today, Christine Clawley, contracted a life-threatening disease, necrotizing fasciitis, which is also known as flesh-eating bacteria. It, it appeared in her throat and in her chest, and she was given perhaps a 1% to 10% chance of surviving. Months prior, she'd had many warning dreams, and in the hospital during a month of medically-induced coma, her dreams and perhaps NDE mirrored what was happening on a physical, emotional, and spiritual level. She remembers one dream in which she chose to re-enter the world and live out the rest of her life, and upon awakening, she could not breathe on her own, speak, eat, or walk, but with a will to live, she also developed a greater sense of intuition and an increasing frequency of lucid and precognitive dreams. Christine embarked on her own journey of healing and self-understanding through exploring various modalities, including yoga, dream work, counseling, indigenous healing ceremonies, and shamanic journeying. She obtained her master's degree in depth counseling psychology from Pacifica Graduate Institute in 2015 and became a licensed professional counselor in 2018. Her professional work has led to work in homeless shelters, hospitals, prisons, and community men mental health centers. Christine also has experience treating individuals with a history of trauma, abuse, addiction, eating disorders, domestic violence, sexual abuse, depression, anxiety, psychosis, and hallucinations, occupational burnout, and chronic health problems. Christine, welcome to NDE Radio. Thank you so much, Lee. I really appreciate the opportunity to be here and share my story with you all. Well, I, uh, it's wonderful that you can be here, and um, and uh, I look I look forward to that. But before we get started, Christine, um, I'd like to plug a fellow explorer of what happens when we die, Sandra Champlain, and her podcast, WeDon'tDieRadio.com. If listeners would go to her excellent interview, number 348, with uh, Christine Clawley, you'll hear much more about Christine's disease and recovery than we'll have time to cover today. Well, Christine, like your parents, my brother is a member of the Self-Realization Fellowship. And I'm wondering, what was it like growing up in a family that followed the teachings of uh, Paramahansa Yogananda? Well, I thanks for asking that question. I, I am rarely asked that question. So you've done your homework <laughs> about uh, myself and my background. And I didn't realize perhaps how unique that was until I... Um, became a little older. So for me, um, I was raised with uh, learning meditation, yoga. I was very, very lucky to have the experience of um, growing up on a farm. So my parents met uh, in La Jolla, California, and they were married uh, at the Self-Realization Center. So they both had that spiritual background. Mm. And then they decided to raise uh, their daughters Um back on my father's inherited farm, 160 acres, and it was an ideal childhood um, it, from my perspective, uh, where I was encouraged to ask questions, um, 
they um, really encourage curiosity, um, I, psychic experiences, dreams weren't necessarily, how do you say, uh, brushed away. They were encouraged um, to be explored in the family. And my dad um, really had a strong interest in the community at bridging the gap between the East and the West, uh, particularly, um, you know, Christianity and then the teachings and Hinduism and Buddhism. So I, I feel very lucky and honored that I, w- I was able to grow up with parents um, who are on a spiritual path and also very open-minded to learning from other spiritual traditions. And I do think that's influenced um, my interest and, and my outlook Wow. Yeah. It sounds like an ideal childhood. It really does. Well, given that uh, they would not have um, belittled your dreams, uh, you have said that before you were diagnosed, you had a warning dream of a Native American woman strangling you. And I was wondering, do you think that was a a memory from a previous life where you might have been wounded in the throat, perhaps? I do wonder about that, and um, I actually have a journal entry here, if I can find it. Um, So this was a journal entry from December 2007, uh, so a few months before the illness, and I said, I saw the girl again last night. She is a part of me, this Native American girl who haunts my dreams. She seems so real. It feels as though it is a strong warning. And then I see the red shirt and I hate it. I don't want to wear it. So there's a lot of detail even in those few short sentences. And looking back, I absolutely see, yes, it was a warning. And the red shirt, you know, did that perhaps represent what was going to be happening to my chest. I had a wound vac um, in my chest and there was a lot of loss of blood. So it could be interpreted that way. Or um, the red shirt could also be representative in the indigenous tradition, the red road, which has been um, a path that I've been on following my illness of uh, learning from indigenous ceremonies. And and that's become what, you know, the primary spiritual path for me and healing. Mm -hmm. Well, um, Two other dreams I think we were going to talk about uh, and your NDE that you experienced during your coma. Tell us about that. Yeah, so when I uh, was in a coma, I was in a medically induced coma. And I do believe that this really, uh, how do I say, kind of shattered the veil for me at least between this world and that other world. Um, When I was in the coma, I had dreams that felt like they lasted an entire lifetime. They were extremely vivid. Um, it felt like it felt like, as I said, it was an entire lifetime, and it was very confusing when I woke up. I did feel like a completely changed uh, person. But the interesting thing to me was the parallels between the dreams I had when I was in the coma and what was happening in this reality or this. Um, or in my physical body. So one dream I'd like to read, um, it was really a turning point for me. 
So I found myself trapped on a massive wooden ship surrounded by a fog and floating in the middle of the ocean. I was an Asian woman and I had survived as a sex slave longer than many of the others. It had been years I was trapped on that ship for so long and I had lost a sense of time and only had a vague memory of my previous life off the ship. My abusers used me less and less, but now they use me to recruit and entrap younger women for them to be brought into the trade. And so I had to deceive these young girls, and all the while I was aware that I was condemning them to my own unbearable destiny. Yet inside I cared for these girls. I wanted to save them, but we were kept completely separate and we were not allowed to communicate in any way. I was lost and beyond hopelessness, a depression so thick that every morning, every moment of my life was torturous. It was because of my role and my fate that I hated myself and desired to end my life. I could feel the creak of the boards and the soft colored wood beneath my feet. That boat surrounded by water was my inescapable prison. My life had been this way for so long that when one day from out of nowhere, She appeared with smooth, pale skin, beautiful, long black hair, and the most kind, compassionate eyes that I will never forget. She looked into my own eyes and broke the spell, broke the silence without saying any words. No words were needed, and she embraced me, and as she did, my desperate isolation and hopelessness completely melted away. She gazed at me with complete understanding and compassion of my personal suffering. She was a beautiful angel, and she was my sister, and I felt the warmth of this sisterly love. I was already rescued and set free because I had regained my inner strength. And this is the second part. I'm not quite sure how this ties into my world yet, but she had traded balloons of opium for my life while risking her life. And then we began to use these same methods to rescue others. These drugs, these balloons were worth more than a human life, but we could never forget or turn our backs on the suffering of these girls. And so we began to rescue more and more, one by one, and would always know the true value of human life and the systems that attempt to crush and exploit it. Wow. Do you believe that actually happened in a previous life? Um, For me, I I do suspect it's possible. I know there's a lot of different theories. Uh, There's theories that past lives do exist. There's theories that there's different parts of us existing in other dimensions or that all time is happening simultaneously, but there's um, a lack of awareness of these other parts. The important thing to me is that this dream was so powerful. It it did represent a turning point where I knew I was going to live. I wanted to live. And in fact, later upon waking, my sister had told me there were moments where I would temporarily um, awaken from the coma and lock eyes with her and be crying and tearful. Oh, wow. So although I have no memory of that, um, I really, truly believe my family being there, the prayers that were sent to me also helped mm. um, me reach this point where I began to get better 
even if it was just, you know, minutely. Well, your your dream interpreted your your locked gaze with your sister. That's wonderful. The, now you had a a very peaceful was was this dream what led into what you called your NDE, uh, where you were in a a very um, what freeing space? I've forgotten. You you told me a no, little about it. No problem at all. So this I actually did not have memory of either until about two years ago. Um, when I had a spontaneous uh, event, like I would call it a healing experience, where I relived my NDE, um, the experience of, you know, the pain I was in, being in the coma, and then this moment where I was, you know, when you're in so much pain, and even though I was in a coma, again, I think it registers in the physical body, it was so much pain and I was unable to cry or scream or anything. And I was resisting and, and fighting. And there was a moment where I completely let go and I was absorbed into this just incredible energy. I don't know how else to describe it of, you know, free of pain, love. And I realized in that moment, there is no death. And in that moment as well, there was um, a decision to return to my body with this new awareness. And when I woke from the coma, I, I was changed. I had such a drive to live. I um, felt so connected to my family. And even though I had all these obstacles to face in my recovery, I, you know, was not dis. I mean, I was discouraged at times, but I would not let that get in the way of of my desire to to live another moment. Um, and, you know, ironically, sometimes I look back on that time when I was in the hospital, and I miss that experience, that feeling where every moment is so precious because you don't know whether you're going to live moment to moment that you have such cr crushing gratitude for your life. Um, you know, in, in the other, uh, hold on a second, I'm trying to think. It's it's hard to put into words, you know, this experience. <laughs> well, yes, of course. And uh, everyone that's had an NDE or a related uh, spiritual event finds it hard to put into words. Exactly. But, but you mentioned the word love, and that, that and the fact that uh, the lack of fear of death after that certainly reflects what many people get from NDEs. It sounds like that's exactly what you went through. Yes, absolutely. And just the incredible gratitude for, like I said, every moment of your life. And you even look back on, you know, something like this, which was very traumatic. And there was a lot of physical pain and suffering and emotional pain, but it really, it was one of the most um, spiritually challenging experiences I went through. It made me em more empathetic, more intuitive. Um, it, it transformed my values. You know, the direction of my life took a completely different path. And there's something about facing death, which immediately puts everything in your life in perspective. And you now Yes, go on. Oh, I was just going to say, you, you've said that you suffered from PTSD afterwards. 
Um, and yet, it sounds like you would have passed through it if you'd reached the point of empathy. And I, I'm sure you must have worked with PTSD patients in your work. Do you do you think that there is a a connection or a uh, a hurdle that if a PTSD per- person can get over that hurdle, that they will become perhaps more empathetic than is normal? Absolutely. And I really love working with patients who've experienced trauma because of my understanding of that experience and what it's like to go through and and heal from that. And my aim is to change the language we use around PTSD, trauma, mental illness, because there can be unacknowledged gifts from this. And I see this in a lot of my patients, although there may be a heightened hypervigilance, uh, you know, being easily triggered, um, repeated images from the past of a traumatic event. event. There's also um, increased empathy, sensitivity, often a creativity um, that interestingly enough that, that, uh, clients um, can tap into when they've been through trauma. So it's not all negative. And um, there's also a depth that can come from one's own personal suffering if one is willing to to face that in a conscious way. And, and counseling for me is a very sacred practice and just being present with someone else in their suffering. We very much live in a culture, in my opinion, where the emotions are suppressed. Um, We value objects. We value, you know, materialistic things or unrealistic images of success. And it all and all of these values, collective values, have a certain cost to the individual. Um, In my opinion, we're a culture that's out of balance. And so that's the other major transformation that occurred for me, not only in reclaiming my own intuitive abilities, um, paying more attention to my physical, emotional health, uh, but also questioning the societal values, um, questioning, you know, this kind of work ethic that I still struggle with sometimes of working, you know, uh, so hard to an extent that you, you know, sacrifice your relationships, um, health, emotional health. Um, so all, all of this was questioned for me. And, you know, it's as I learn to kind of separate, separate out what are my own authentic values versus, you know, what I've been conditioned by the culture, that helps me in working with my clients as well, sure. you know, to, to reclaim their authentic values and gifts and um, be able to separate out the conditioning, the false conditioning. Yeah. I'm going to throw a, a, a different sort of question at you right now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> On your website, you have a quote from Carl Jung, and uh, let me read it. The dream is a little hidden door in the innermost and most secret recesses of the soul, opening into that cosmic night which was psyche long before there was any ego consciousness, and which will remain psyche no matter how far our ego consciousness extends. Could you explain that to our listeners? Absolutely. Um, I think... I can't remember if Jung said it or or uh, another author. I've uh, it's attributed to C.G. Jung. Yes, but there's another quote that you know uh, 
receiving a dream and not analyzing it is like receiving an unopened letter and throwing it away. It's it's an, a letter from your soul, uh, from your subconscious. And we live in such a world where the pace of life is so fast um, with technology. Really, you know, we're expected to be connected all the time, focused on the external. And so... For myself, and I, I think for others, dreams offer this direct access to this deeper part of the self. And I've had incredible, you know, breakthroughs and messages by paying attention to my dreams. I've experienced precognitive dreams. I've had dreams that have been life-saving for family members. Um, and so I think, you know, this is something that is a part of our uh part of humanity. Um, There's a lot of research that confirms uh, that we have the ability to foresee events before they happen on a subconscious level, whether that be registering it through information in the body, having a physical reaction to something, uh, call it that gut feeling, um, or maybe even through a dream uh, that we can, can actually detect events before they happen. So this this is something that is a part of our birthright. And I think, you know, NDEers especially are paving the way for us to collectively reclaim these gifts and and balance out that that uh, focus on our culture um, on the left brain, on detail oriented, proving something versus balancing that with the intuitive knowledge, with the whole uh, picture of things, with um the imagination. Mm. I mean, we, we've really set up an educational system that doesn't allow children and, and adults even to develop that part of themselves. And there is a cost to that. It's sad but true. And uh, unfortunately, religion, which should be in the forefront of having children explore these things, has stood in the way of a lot of alternative teaching that the public schools are allowed to teach. What do you, what? Let me ask you this: um, If there are such things as prophetic dreams, precognitive dreams, dreams of future events, what does that say about the nature of time? Absolutely, and that again is one of my favorite areas of research, and uh, something I wrote my graduate thesis on: uh, questioning our Western conception of time as linear. There are other cultures that look at time as uh, cyclical such as Eastern cultures, um, indigenous peoples have a different conception of time that is more tied to the natural rhythms and cycles of, of nature. And so, again, I think technology complicates this issue too, because in this society, um, we're focused on tomorrow, <laughs> often mm-hmm. at the expense of, of the present moment. And uh, the our sense of time is being, our attention span is being shortened. Uh, we're expecting an instant gratification. We're becoming, in essence, a little more superficial, I would argue. And there's an excellent book by an author, Nicholas Carr, called The Shallows. And he really uh, presents an extraordinary argument about how it's this addiction to technology, um, this economic system we have is really preventing individuals from processing information deeply, 
from deeply relating to one another. Um, it's undermining our, the social fabric of our culture. And again, there there is cost to this. So I think questioning something like time is uh, can be of huge benefit. You know, what is your relationship to time? Uh, wh- where are your priorities? Um, you know, most of us have to work and survive, but you know, this is our one life here. You know, we can't sacrifice everything to um, an employer. So really taking inventory of how you relate to your body, how you engage with nature and kind of disconnecting from this man-made temporal system we have, which is also based on a kind of a pyramidal structure. Um, Another amazing author, Jeremy Rifkin, wrote a book called Time Wars, The Primary Conflict in Human History. And he talked of uh, our temporal system being in the form of somewhat of a pyramid. So those who are time rich, they have more time, they have more leisure time, they have more time to think, plan their future, uh, engage in meaningful activities, whereas the poor are time poor. They're always behind, they always have to work hard, and they don't have as much time to um, engage in, you know, being there with their children, helping them learn. Uh, So this is something systemic as well. Yes. One of the things I love about pyramids is that you've got four sides. You've got duality doubled, rising to a point of singularity. And that it's it's this seems like it should be the nature of creation rising up to where we should be or where we'll be eventually. Uh, before we run out of time, I want speaking of, um, mm-hmm. I want you to talk about the movie you're directing and where where that stands and what what's it all about. Yes. So uh, we don't have a title for the film yet, but it is um, a film that questions and and looks at critically the nature of time. Um, I've interviewed experts, uh, individuals. So Eric Wargo um, has written a book called Time Loops. Dr. Bernard Beitman, he's uh, studied Uh, instances of synchronicity, psi experiences, and there's statistical significance in these studies. Um, Rob and Trish McGregor, they've also written several books on synchronicity, and um, there's other experts as well. But this uh, film really collects all the evidence, uh, dreams, synchronicity, science fiction writers who've predicted events that uh, have come to unfold um, as well as um, I'm trying to think of other time anomalies, uh, shared de- uh, deaths or crossing experiences. Um, there's all kinds of uh, evidence out there that the model we have for time is not completely accurate. So, you know, this is something that impacts us in a very human way. And uh, I just look forward to getting this film out there. We've collected all the footage. Now we're just in the editing phase of putting this together. Oh, wow. Do you have a date, a, a, a target date? Not yet. With everything going on, um, I'm very busy as well, uh, working at a community me- mental health center and private practice. But I'm hoping to really spend some time on this in the fall and have maybe a first um, release of the film out. Sounds very exciting. It, uh, I'm looking forward to it. Um, 
we have maybe just a second or two left, and I'm going to ask you a, a question you can't possibly answer in this amount of time. Carl Jung in Memories, Dreams, and Reflections describes an NDE he experienced in outer space where he entered a temple. Do you, have you read that? I have. Um, I'm having trouble remembering the exact experience. And it was, I think it was a temple that he recognized from someplace on Earth, maybe India or or one of the, one east an eastern country i do i don't know i can't remember i couldn't remember it either but it occurred to me while we were talking and um it that's that too seemed to me to be um something that would be outside of time and yet he related it to something that he knew about on earth uh, i guess i don't really have a question to attach to that it's just a reference that popped into my head um that's a phenomenal book, by the way. Yes. Very, very life-changing for me to read that book and realize, wow, there's another uh, psychologist in the world who's had these experiences, uh, has language to describe these experiences. And my gosh, we just kind of skip over that, you know, in school most of the time. But he really has contributed tremendously to the yeah. field. Mm-hmm. And when you look at the split that took place between uh, Jung and uh, Freud, and what a what a completely different point of view uh, or set of conclusions the two of them came up with, it's it's really astounding. Looking at the same material and reading it so differently. Absolutely. Well, Christine, I, I'm afraid we're out of time for today, but um, tell the listeners how they can find your website. And uh, I don't know that have you. You haven't published a book yet, have you? Not yet. That That's on my radar. Someday when I have more time, <laughs> still trying to find that balance myself. So, But um, so your, your website? Yes, it's www.lucidawakening.com. And then the other website for the film is circlinghawkproductions, uh, with an S, dot com. And you're also going to be uh, on a panel during the upcoming IONS conference, which is August 14th, 15th, and you said you'd be on the 16th. Tell us what you're going to be doing there. Yes, I'm on a panel uh, at 11 a.m. Pacific time, uh, exploring the gifts of the NDE and how uh, that can be applied to counseling and clinical work. Wow. Well, I'm going to be moderating some of that. I don't know if I'm on at the same time you are. I haven't looked at the final schedule yet. But, Christine, this has been a a real pleasure for me to talk about all this with you. And uh, when your movie comes out, we'll have you come back and and, uh, talk about, about it, how you put it together and where people can see it and so forth. So you keep me posted as to when it's uh, when it's finally ready. Okay. thank you, Lee. Okay. Well, folks, tune in again next Monday, 11 a.m. Eastern, for more NDE Radio. This is Lee Whitting saying thanks for listening.